So Isaiah 65, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster. And one says, do not destroy it, for there's benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword. And all of you will bow down to the slaughter because I called and you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called by another name. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. Lord, we open your word this morning, these pages of scripture. We do so in faith, absolutely believing, Lord, that you spoke these words. You inspired the prophet Isaiah to write down what you wanted him to write down. You gave these words to your people Israel. And you spoke directly to the heart of Judah, to the heart of Jacob. And we pray, Father, again for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that faith will enter wholesale the people of Israel. And we pray for the expansion even now and today, for the name of Yeshua HaMashiach to be moving among the Jewish people. And Father, while we recognize this passage is for Israel, we see application for us. As in all of these things in Scripture, Lord, when you talk to one group of people, we recognize that it is the same God speaking then as the God of our hearts now, and we realize there's something here that we need to know. And we pray, Holy Spirit, would you peel back the layers of our heart and get in deep this morning? May we not get stuck on the surface, but hear what you really are saying here, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Isaiah 65. This morning we are into the second to last chapter of the book of Isaiah. And I'm always impressed as we come to the close of a book, as we've done so many times since we began this fellowship nearly nine years ago now, I'm always impressed to see how God ends the book. You know, how He wraps it all up, how He brings it all to, a, to an inspired conclusion. And so we see in Isaiah 65, he contrasts a rebellious people with a serving people. He calls my servants. And he commands the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. We'll look at that Wednesday night and it's marvelous. And then in Isaiah 66, he condemns hypocrisy among all people. 
He communicates the most stunning prophetic uh, word that has been fulfilled in our time. It's absolutely amazing that we can look back in the previous generation, many people of that generation still alive today who saw this prophecy fulfilled not thousands of years ago, but now. And he calls for joy in Jerusalem's future. He confirms the endurance of Israel. All of these things. And finally, for the grand finale, the wonderful final verse that concludes it all, he concludes with corpses. Corpses. Look at it. Look at Isaiah 66, verse 24. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Lord, really? I read that and it amazes me because in my wisdom, I would not end the book that way. That is not the way I would close out this amazing prophecy. 66 chapters of one prophetic word after another and we end in the dirt with worms and corpses and fire and judgment. And the Jewish people agree with me. In fact, there's such a a strong Jewish distaste for the last verse in Isaiah that they actually repeat verse 23 after verse 24 in the Hebrew Bible. If you look it up, you go verse 23, verse 24, and verse 23 again. Just to give it kind of a little bit of a lift at the end, a more positive note. The Hebrew Bible, by the way, does the same thing with the end of Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Malachi. Because all three of those end in a negative, end with a curse. And so the Hebrew Bible pulls out a blessing from right before it and sticks it at the end just to soften and, and encourage the heart. It's kind of like the ending of 1 John. I see the same thing there. You know, John writes in 1 John 5.20, We know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. Hallelujah. Amen. Close the book. Put down the pen, John. But he writes, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Okay, it's an important word, John, but put it before. You know, let's end on the up note with Jesus. And he says, no, little children, guard yourself from idols. Verse 20, soars to the heights of Christ. Verse 21, descends to the depths of humanity. Kind of a letdown of a tagline. And yet it's absolutely intentional. And we need to understand that God's Word was never intended to be light reading. He did not give the Bible as a pop-up book. He did not give the Bible as a bedtime story, a little nighty-night to comfort you before you sleep. Now there is comfort there, you know, and great encouragement and exhortation. There is the love and the grace of God throughout the pages of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. But the Bible was not written simply to make people feel good. It's not light reading, it's a light to our feet. It's a lamp to our path. But it is not to tickle ears or to escape the truth as so many books truly are. So sometimes the end is not what we expect. Sometimes the conclusion is unsettling, convicting, and even upsetting. And that's exactly how Isaiah closes out the book. It is a convicting, unsettling, upsetting word. And sometimes, sometimes the Word of God gives me heartburn. It truly does. 
I mean, let's, let's be honest with this, that sometimes you're reading Scripture and you just go, ah, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> That's uncomfortable. I'm not going to share that with anybody. Heartburn. Jeremiah had it, and he had it bad. Jeremiah 20, verse 8, he said, For me the word of God has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But if I say, I will not remember him, or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. What do you mean, Isaiah or Jeremiah? I'm burning up inside. I don't want to speak this word, but I can't help it. I have to. Paul felt the same way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, he said, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. I have to do this. I can't even tell you that was my word that I brought to you. I tell you all this from time to time. People come up and say, Hey, great word this morning, Pastor. And I say, I had to tell it. It wasn't my word. Don't thank me for His word. It's His word. He's the one who gives it. Paul says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What is Paul saying? That he preached some things against his own will. He said some things he didn't want to say. That he would not have chosen to share. Either way, Paul says, voluntarily or not, I'm preaching the gospel. I have to. And I get that. You know, ever since we started down this road of verse by verse through the Bible, we've hit places, we've hit scriptures, we've hit passages that I have not wanted to deal with. I have not personally wanted to preach. It has forced me, the Lord has forced me to change direction in my own life because if I don't change direction, I can't talk about this. And I pray the same for every single one of you. I pray that you cannot read it without changing direction if you're headed in a a direction contrary to the Scriptures. I pray that you can't close the Bible, set it aside, and go, well, we'll deal with that another time. No, deal with it now. Face it as it comes. Oh boy, Rick, what are we going to talk about this morning? This is not a topic I would have chosen. Especially among all the Sunday teachings that we have of of this grand conclusion of Isaiah. But we are approaching, gang, the glorious conclusion of this age. And so we have to talk about some things. The Lord is drawing sharp lines of distinction. We are in this time in the world's history at the end when the lines of distinction and the lines of choice are being absolutely drawn with a blood-red marker. And God is saying to you and would say to me this morning, choose your side. Decide where you stand. Don't walk the line. Get off the fence. Do not be lukewarm. There is no more time for that distinction. Either be among my servants or be among the rebellious. Don't pretend or play games with me. There's no time for it. I want to encourage you as we consider this. And you have to decide, do I want to be among the rebellious or among the servants of the Lord? That's the choice. It's a very simple choice. It is not, I want to be among the servants of the Lord and still what I want to do what I want to do. Rebellious or servant of the Lord? And I want you to keep this in mind. I encourage you to not get stuck on the surface of the issue this morning because we have an issue, a very simple and easy one. It's one we can just take pot shots at all day long. It's so obvious. Don't get stuck on the surface. 
Just pause and consider your place in the kingdom of God, rebellious or servant of the Lord. So here's the issue. Several weeks back, we got a phone call from our son, Corey. Corey was 21. He's just turned 22, but he's 21 at the time. And he asked Cheryl and me, what does the Bible really have to say about gambling? Is going to the casino problematic? Now, Corey had a sense that there was something there. But he had never seen anything direct. He had never seen anything specific. He said, well, what does the Bible have to say about it? So like any good father, I told him, you know, son, you got to know when to hold him. (laughs) Know when to fold him. Know when to walk away. Know when to run. I said, Corey, you never count your money at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the day is done. Thanks, Dad. There'll be time enough for counting, Kenny Rogers. He should have stuck with chicken. He said there'll be time enough for counting when the day is done. Remember the last verse of Isaiah? The one about the corpses? There will not be time for counting when the day is done. Okay, so Rick, do you think gambling is a sin? doesn't matter what I think. Corey's question was the right question. What does the Word of God tell us? Now, wherever you have been in your life, in games you've played, in gambling you've done, in casinos you've visited, wherever, whatever, from this moment forward, the question, the issue before us is, what does the Bible say? Not just what, what does Rick think about this. What does the Bible say? So I went on a search for Corey. And I studied all over and I pulled together a bunch of verses and I was just thinking this through and, and the Lord led me to this passage this morning. And we were several weeks back in Isaiah and I knew this was coming. I'm like, oh, really? I don't want to talk about gambling. Lord, really? That seems so 1950s. I mean, that's what a preacher would harp on then. Don't you know, drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't gamble, don't go with girls who do, all that stuff. <laughs> What does the Word of God tell us? Look at verse 11. You who forsake the Lord, who forget My holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will bow down to the slaughter. Now again, God's talking to Israel. This is a word to His people Israel through His prophet Isaiah, but the application is absolutely immediate to us right now. He's still the same God, and unfortunately we're still the same type of people as the people He was talking to. We still have the same sin issues. He still has the same answer. And God highlights four things, four issues, that will develop rebellion and deny a servant heart. Remember the question, do you want to be a servant of the Lord, or do you want to be a rebellious one? Your choice, but there are four issues that pop up in these few verses here that encourage or develop rebellion. And God lists these out for us. And the first issue is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. You who forsake the Lord, and then He describes how, who forget My holy mountain. That is A number one. You forget My holy mountain. From David to Isaiah, Jerusalem was built on the southern slope of Mount Moriah. I love looking at the old pictures. In fact, when we visit the city of David, when we go to Israel, it's just one of my favorite places. It's a marvelous place because it's south of the Temple Mount. You literally look up toward where the temple would have stood. There in the city of David. 
And that was all of Jerusalem, Temple Mount, down to the city of David. That originally was Jerusalem. And it's spread out quite a bit since then. It's much larger than it was in those days. But from David to Isaiah, that was Jerusalem. That was the holy mountain of the Lord. When Zion was talked about, and yes, there is a Mount Zion there too, Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, Mount of Olives. But as you're standing there looking up, though Mount Zion was talked about, Zion, God's Zion, was the holy mountain of the Lord with the temple at the pinnacle of the mount. The the attention-drawing perspective is right up there for the people to see and be aware of and go up to. People would go up to Jerusalem and then they would go up to the temple. And God says, you want to develop a rebellious heart? Forget about it. Forgetfulness. Forget my holy mountain. Back in Psalm 2, verse 6. The Lord says, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And it was a prophecy of Jesus who will be, by the way, installed as king on that mountain out of the temple in the coming millennial kingdom. I've installed my king there on my holy mountain. Why is it called the holy mountain? Because he was there. The dirt wasn't holy. Any more than the water for baptism is holy, or the oil for anointing is holy. There's nothing holy in the substance other than that it is dedicated to him. The mountain itself, dedicated to the Lord. He was there. And you wonder, how could God's people forget that? How could you live in the city of David at the base of the Temple Mount and forget the holy mountain of the Lord? It's like sitting at the base of Mount Rainier and forgetting Mount Rainier. Or the base of Mount Baker. We look across, we see Mount Baker all the time. Do you ever find yourself driving along and go, there's a mountain over there. You don't forget Mount Baker. How can you forget the holy mountain of the Lord? And even for those who lived in other places in the land, they were required to go up to Jerusalem, every man in Israel, seven times a year. Three times were absolute. Four more times were invitations. And those who really loved the Lord... All seven times. Why? Because God wanted the life cycle of the Jewish person to revolve around His holy mountain, His temple, and His presence. In my presence, as we say. I want you to be in my presence. You'd think that amazing edifice there would help. You'd think the Shekinah glory of God would help. Not necessarily. Because sometimes... Things can be as obvious as the nose on our faces. And yet we forget. Jesus' people, you need to remember that just as the Spirit of the Lord uh, took up residence on His holy mountain, so He now takes up residence in your spirit. He is present with you. More present than with the Jew who would leave Jerusalem and go back to his home. In those days, the Holy Spirit was not poured out on all the people. It was only poured out on the king or on prophets or specific ones that God said, I'm going to pour my Spirit out here. But in these last days, I have poured out my Spirit on all people, He says. So you bear the Spirit of the living God, the same Shekinah glory that filled the temple. That same Spirit dwells within you. Ever forget? You ever ignore that? I mean, there are really kind of a couple of ways we approach this forgetfulness thing. There's unintentional forgetfulness, you know, life and stress and worry and everything starts to invade and, and you forget that God's in control. Forgetfulness. There are other times where you're headed out the door to a place and you don't want to think about 
the Holy Spirit of the living God because that would well, that might put a damper on your evening or on what you're about to go do or about what you're doing in the moment. Paul was so specific about this. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, a verse we actually read last week, he said, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Talk about the holy mountain of the Lord. You're walking around. He says, You have Him from God, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Whatever behaviors your body does, wherever, whatever places your body visits, He is there. And you can't extricate yourself from Him unless you want to live in that place of rebellion. His Spirit is with you wherever you go. Whatever you do. And so Paul writes in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him, through Him, to God the Father. You can't light up to the glory of God. No drug addict shoots up to the praise of Jesus. No one downs the third or the fourth drink thinking, well, someone may say hallelujah, but they don't know what they're saying. (laughs) It is not to the glory of God. If you are a Christian, your body houses the Spirit of Christ as a temple, and that is far more personal and immediate than the temple itself ever was. You can come near, but He did not enter. Except in specific instances. John 14.23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. And how is that? Through the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of God. Who enters in and resides with you. And so just as Israel forgets the holy mountain, sometimes we forget the indwelling presence of His Spirit. And sometimes it's all too convenient. Try to ignore that God is right here. Forgetting His presence leads to forsaking His person. The more I forget or deny the presence of the Lord in me, the more I forsake being around Him. People wonder, why doesn't God seem to be near me? And really, the first question you ought to ask is, why am I not near God? What's going on? What am I doing? that would cause me to be less able to hear what the Spirit is saying. Forgetting His presence leads to forsaking His person. Thank God He's not like that. He never forgets. He never forsakes. In Isaiah 49.15, He said, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. That's issue number one. Rebellion, servant of the Lord. To be rebellious, forgetfulness is required. Second issue before us. We're going to take actually issues two and three together, and they are fortune and fate. Fortune and fate. Verse 11 continuing says, not only those who forget my holy mountain, but who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. A table for fortune and mixed wine for destiny and I thought wow how comfortably gambling and drinking go together (laughs) here they are in the same verse I saw a table of fortune it jumped off the page and went whoa 
And as God impressed on my heart, truly did, that you need to talk about gambling at some point, Rick. And I'm like, oh, I've never talked about that. Really? You need to talk about this, Rick. I, I thought, well, why, Lord? What's, what's the big deal? You know? And he said, Rick, look around. And so I started to look around. Wow. Gambling is big business in Washington State. Huge. From the World Casino Directory, and yes, I looked this up, Washington State boasts 144 plus casinos and gambling establishments. Just our state. With names like the Emerald Queen, Angel of the Winds, and our own lovely Swinomish Northern Lights Casino. And all these casinos and establishments, of course, they include fine dining, and concerts, and karaoke, and all kinds of family entertainment. You drive by the Tulalip Casino, and it's like you're passing Disneyland with the little orcas up in front. And the kids are like, can we go there, Dad? No. And this doesn't even touch online gambling, which is a massive problem. Massive issue for people. It doesn't mess with gambling groups or clubs. We're just talking casinos, 144. Now, literally translated, Isaiah 65, verse 11 reads, Those who prepare a table for Gad, who prepare a drink offering for many. Gad and many, M-E-N-I, is the transliteration there. Gad was the pagan god of fortune. The Romans and the Greeks later took that same god and called him Jupiter. Many is the pagan god of fate. And the Romans and Greeks took many and they gave him the name Venus. Jupiter and Venus, Gad and many, fortune and fate, and that is the undercurrent of gambling. It's what it's all about, fortune and fate. Now I know there are those who would say, come on Rick, it's all just good, harmless fun. I don't gamble to make money, I just gamble for the fun of it. Okay, well let's get a good, harmless perspective from the Word of God. And let's think this through for a minute. And I'm just going to run down the verses that I handed to my son. He got a three-page outline. He's like, thanks, Dad. You know. <laughs> I'm like, you asked. <laughs> you might want to jot down. Did we get the verses up? We don't have them up. Okay. Are you working on it? Okay. John's going to try and get these here up in just a second. But you may want to just jot these down as I read them to go back and, and think about them. Especially if this is an area that you've never really considered. And maybe you're someone who says, I've never been to a casino, I'm not going to a casino, I don't even, you know, I'm terrible at cards anyway, so no big deal. Fine. You may be someone who, you enjoy the casino. You enjoy Black Gack. You Black Gack. I like that. You like Black Gack. You enjoy playing the tables. You go there just for the fun of it. Okay, you need to think through these verses. Before you go again, stop and consider. Don't be blind. Think about what's going on. Here are the verses. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. The Lord starts out saying, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Where do you think the money comes from that you win at a casino? It does not come from the casino. It comes from your neighbor. And as a matter of fact, there is no such thing as a win that isn't the result of somebody else's loss. So your win is someone else's loss. Don't forget that. Proverbs 13, verse 11. 
Solomon wrote that, well, Solomon, the richest man who ever lived, wrote, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles. Gambling is fraud. It's, it's cheating. It's faking out. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Proverbs 28.22, he says, A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that, what, that want will come upon him. The basis of gambling is hasty wealth. I made 20 bucks tonight. I made over $100. I gambled 200 but I made 100 People play these games. And I get that some people will gamble for fun, but where would the fun be without some kind of winnings? Right? Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. The more you love getting, the more you're going to want to try to get. And the more you're going to need to get to fulfill the the desire to get, but it will never be fulfilled, so you're continually trying to get more. And by the way, that doesn't just apply to gambling, it applies to our lifestyles as well. This is vanity, Solomon says. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. For he will, ha- he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You're either a servant of the Lord, or you're in rebellion. Those are the choices. Here's an interesting one to think about, Matthew 27:35. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Well, I would never gamble at the feet of Jesus. Think about that. What was going on at his death was gambling. Matthew 7 verse 20, verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Every single Sunday, we were there. And we were worshiping you. And we went to retreats. And we involved ourselves in ministry. We did all these great things. And listen to what he says. I will declare to them I never knew you. That's issue number one. There was no relationship. It was all just pretense. But he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You can say you're a believer in Jesus all you want, but what are you practicing? John says if you practice righteousness, you belong to Him. But if you practice sin, you don't. Are you practicing lawlessness? Lawlessness. Casinos are still illegal in 30 out of 50 states. There's a reason for that. And by the way, bracket pools, office sports pools, and even fantasy sports are illegal in Washington. So if you're signed up for a fantasy sports league this coming fall, and you're putting down your hundred bucks to be involved in it, and to play along and to enjoy it with your friends and your buddies, you know, it's illegal in this state. Thanks a lot, Rick. <laughs> Remember, what we're trying to do here is not to make anyone guilty or destroy anyone's fun. We are trying to get a godly perspective. I'm not trying to level judgment on anyone or argue interpretations of Scripture. It's simply about remembering God in everything we do. This just happens to be one area. It's the one we get to poke a little bit this morning. But it's one of so many areas of our our lives where the question has to be asked, am I doing something that is God-pleasing or Rick-pleasing? Or man-pleasing? It's about honoring God in our body and our behavior, welcoming His presence into every single aspect of our lives, even our entertainment. And that's an area where I believe many of us as Christians struggle, inviting God into our entertainment. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed, 
For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So question, does gambling encourage or discourage greed? Luke 16.13 No servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus already said this. We read this in Matthew. You cannot serve God and wealth. And Jesus doesn't say there, repeated in the Scriptures, doesn't say some people can handle it on an occasional basis. He says you can't serve both. Period. Acts chapter 20, verse 33, the Apostle Paul said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He Himself said is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's entire reasoning is based on Jesus' simple admonition to give. Which is the exact opposite of gambling, which is to get. Jesus says give. Satan says get. Jesus says give. My servants. Satan says get. You who would rebel. Romans 1.28, Paul said, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. And then he gives a list. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Maybe you don't have an issue with gambling at all, but someone in your fantasy football league does. Are you giving hearty approval to something that is destroying someone else's life? For the sake of your own fun. The list is long, my friends, of people whose lives are mastered by gambling. Marriage is destroyed by gambling. Two of my closest friends from high school and college are now divorced because of his gambling. Another couple I can... Best friends of Cheryl. Same thing. Marriage divided. Gambling was the reason. We don't normally think about this because our culture has become so comfortable with the casino. It is part of the Washington landscape. Mountains, trees, casinos. It's where we live, gang. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul just said, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Think about the atmosphere of the casino. Smoking, drinking, illicit shows, blatant, blatant sin. What's the Las Vegas sales pitch? I don't even have to say it. You've all heard it a hundred times. What happens in Vegas <laughs> stays in Vegas. No one's going to know what you do in the dark and the secret. God knows. Remember, His Holy Spirit's right there. I went to a youth pastor's conference in Las Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> really? And the guy's like, yeah, it's cheap. It's a great place to meet. It's the middle of the country. And we, we, these are guys who we met from all over the country and got together. About 25, 30 of us. And uh, 
I remember landing, getting off the plane and going, I don't like being here. And just walking down the street, people handing you, you know, flyers, and you're going, and walking through the casino, and everybody's going, yeah, but the buffets are great. Yeah, I can't taste them because I'm so filled with smoke. Why? Why did we even meet there? I still don't know. We moved it to San Diego the next week, or the next year. The atmosphere of casinos, bad company corrupts good morals. Casinos are directly connected to organized crime, which is something people don't think about at all, but that's exactly what's going on. It's where the crime lords get the big bucks and make their money. And you, again, maybe none of these other things affect you, but if you're going to the casino, you are contributing to organized crime. Think about it. Be aware of it. Ephesians chapter 4.28 Paul says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor. I'm not stealing, I'm gambling. Yeah, you're stealing from the guy who lost. Okay, That's where your money's coming from. He must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. You're not losing your money to someone else. You're giving it because you have worked for it and it's yours to give and to bless with. Are you doing something good with your hands when you gamble? Casinos are not in the generosity business gang. That is the whole front. Come on in, win a buck. You know, you'll, we'll, we'll. they don't use the word bless, but they might as well. We'll bless you. Come into this place and be a big winner. And yet they make huge, huge amounts of money by ripping people off. Why do you think the Native American population has chosen casinos? It is a money maker. And I do not mean any, that is not a slight on Native Americans at all, but it's a money-making proposition. Big time. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. This you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Servants who have an inheritance, rebellious ones, corpses. God is drawing the lines. Gambling fulfills the desire of covetousness. It's about, it's about giving or getting, which is born out of greed or covetousness. God even explains how that works. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. And many foolish and harmful desires will plunge men into ruin and destruction. Seems so harmless. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And I think I've mentioned before, maybe a year or two ago, a young man that I knew who stood up at a youth conference committed his life not just to Christ, but to ministry. I'm going into ministry. And of course the whole youth group gathered around him and said, all right, prayed for him, laid hands on him. He's committed to ministry. And he got a job about seven, eight years ago at a casino and now he's an atheist. And I see a fall like that. And I just share that to give you absolute example. It's exactly what Scripture said. Casinos and office pools aside, how much of the wealth of Wall Street is based on gambling and risk? Those of you who had never darkened the doorstep of a casino, where are your investments? We need to think about these things. Hebrews 13.5 Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. 
Being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Does gambling of any kind help a person remain free from the love of money? What would you prefer? A full bank account or the fullness of the Spirit of the living God? That's the contrast. And that's the issue, by the way, with the table of Gad and the drink offering to many. Fortune and fate deny God's favor. Let me say that again. Understand what I'm saying. Fortune and fate deny God's favor. It's not that God doesn't want to give His favor. It's you're not asking. You're not looking to Him for favor. You're looking to fortune and fate. And in that process, you deny the very favor of God. Roll the dice. You know, put your cards on the table. Come and try your luck. But to rely on luck or fate or fortune ignores the sovereignty of the Lord who Himself promised to provide everything we need. And more. He says, all I ask of you is one very simple thing. Seek the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You don't have to be concerned with that. That doesn't have to be your focus. Just let me be the focus. And I'll take care of the rest. Verse 12. He says, I will destine you for the sword. All of you will bow down to the slaughter because I called and you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear and you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. There's a fourth issue. And all of this leads right down to that point. The forgetfulness we talked about, the fate, the fortune, it all brings us down to this very dangerous place. Issue number four, flaunted sin. Flaunted sin. Notice what he says. You did evil in my sight. Modern day translation. You did evil right up in my face. Right up in my face. You just, ah, it's cool. God will understand. My brothers and sisters in Christ who I'm you know, going out gambling with, we all get it. We understand. Flaunted sin. Forgetting His presence. Pursuing fortune, living by faith, these things the Israelites began to do and it caused them to flaunt their sin before the Lord. I'll give you an example of this, one of the most amazing examples in Scripture of flaunted sin. And it happened in the book of Numbers. Chapter 25, the children of Israel were in Moab. On their way to the promised land, they hadn't crossed into the promised land yet. They're in Moab at a place called Shittim. And the Moabites had been trying to destroy Israel and couldn't do it. So the Bible tells us in other places that Balaam, the seer, gives them an idea how to undermine Israel. Send your daughters. (laughs) Right, guys? Send the ladies in. And you can undermine the people of Israel. So the Moabite daughters began to come around. And the Israelite sons began to go, hey... Because the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, right? And they're looking outside of their own. we got our sisters and our all these people. You know, but the women of Moab, have you seen them? All painted up and pretty. They're coming around, and the sons of Israel began to go out to the daughters of Moab. And the daughters of Moab led them into temple prostitution, and into immorality, and into sacrifice. And all this was happening in a very short amount of time. This is in the crossover between Israel going into the land and and when they left Mount Sinai. Not a whole lot of time. It it happened very quickly. And all this is going on. And we're told in Numbers 25, verse 6, Then one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses 
and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Why were they weeping? Because the sons of Israel were going out. And Moses and Aaron, they were beside themselves. What do we do? We've had this long path. We went through the Red Sea. We've seen the miracles of God. And here we are. And the sons of Israel are going out in absolute rebellion. And they're weeping and they're upset about it. And this guy brings this foreign girl into his tent. Right in front of him. Walks right by him. Heads into the tent. And I love what happened next. My man, Phineas. Stands up. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And when he he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through. How did he pierce both of them through? Well, they were probably in a position he could do that. He pierces them through, stabs them through with the with the spear, and comes out. He murders them. Now you need to understand that God at that point said, every rebellious son of Israel, I want you to take to the sword. He had already told Moses and Aaron that. That may be part of the reason they were weeping too, is they didn't want to do it. And God said, we will not have this. I am establishing that man for centuries would understand how absolutely serious holiness is. That you would understand how serious it is to sin in abject rebellion to the Lord your God. If these guys are going out in sin, then they will go down to the dust. Take the sword to them. And no one was doing it. And Phineas had had it. And when it was so flaunted and right in front of him, he grabs a spear, he drives them through. Sin kebab. (laughs) Or sin on a stick, whatever you want to call it. How could someone get to the point that they would flaunt sin so rebelliously? And I'll tell you how. The conscience of the believer gets seared. The conscience is fried. It's no big deal. We all do it. One of the most insidious things that happens among church people is when we wink together at sin. The whole issue, we know Jesus. We all go to church together. We're not telling anybody what we're doing tonight. We'll just go do this and we'll be back Sunday. No big deal. At least we're with good people. You know? A seared conscience says this. I know how God feels about this. I don't care. I know how God feels about money and greed and covetousness and gambling. I don't care. I know it bothers Him. I don't care. Now listen carefully to this verse. I know you've heard it many times, but Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some listen, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You know what's so sobering about this? Paul is not talking about the rebellious world. He's talking about believers. Paul says in the last days, Oh, once saved, always saved. Once you're saved, you can't walk away from faith. Yes, you can. Absolutely you can. This word tells us you can. I could lose my salvation? I didn't say that. You can't lose your salvation. God's not going to take it away from you, but you can reject it. 
You can leave it. You can walk away from it. Paul says that's exactly what's going to happen. Some will fall away. Apostasis is the word in the Greek. Apostasy. Some will fall away from the faith. To fall away from the faith, you have to be in the faith. Right? And how does that happen? The conscience gets seared. At the end of this age, where are the servants of the Lord? Where are those who are simply standing up for righteousness and saying, I don't care if it's fun, I'm not going there. I don't care if this is something I'm accustomed to, or this is behavioral, or this is cultural. I don't care if it's relevant, I'm not going there. Where are the servants? Who is zealous for righteousness like Phineas? I'm not saying go spear anybody. Please don't. That would not reflect well on this church or the pastor. (laughs) But did you know that Phineas was blessed for his zeal? Psalm 106 verse 30 says, Phineas stood up and interposed, so the plague was stayed. There was a plague on Israel. God was so angry with what was going on, Israel was plagued, and 24,000 Israelites died from the plague that God sent among them when Moses and Aaron and the other leaders would not deal with it. He sent a plague and dealt with it. And because Phineas showed faith and said, I stand with the Lord and this is not okay, when he drove the spear through those two people, God stopped the plague. And the psalmist goes on and says, And it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. Phineas was righteous. Phineas was on the side of the Lord. He was more concerned with God's holiness than with political correctness. That's what mattered to him. And one more thing about flaunted sin here. Here's the real danger. Here's the real sickness. Flaunted sin rejects God's forgiveness. That's where salvation gets lost. Or left. Is when you get to the point that you're flaunting your sin, you are saying, I don't care if this bothers you, Lord. I don't care if this goes against what you clearly teach me. I'm doing it anyway. What you're saying is, I don't need your forgiveness. I don't want your forgiveness. Again, it's not that God won't forgive. It's that people won't receive the offer. My forgiveness is right here. Don't need it. And that is the description of someone who has left their faith. You know what's remarkable to me? Is rather than spear us for our sin which we deserve, Jesus took the spear for our sin which we deserve. But if we only accept the crucifixion of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, if we only accept it in pretense because that's how I was raised, because that's what we do at church. If we continue to live however we want, after receiving the grace of God, we are flaunting sin in God's face. And Paul says in Hebrews 6, verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away... It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves to themselves, the Son of God, and they put Him to open shame. Now, don't get all freaking out on me like, well, but I sinned last week. Am I no longer forgiven? You know what? If you, if you have turned your heart to the Lord, if this morning you are pierced to your heart and you repent and you return your heart to the Lord, 
Well, then your conscience hasn't been seared, has it? And His grace is all over you. Back in Isaiah 65.12, He says, I called to you. I called to you. You didn't answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. He's trying to get a word in. He's trying to get the point across. We say, I wish I could hear from the Lord. And He's like, I'm talking. I'm speaking to you. Right now. And yet you did evil in My sight. That is the rebellious heart. Forgetting His presence, fortune and fate instead of His favor, flaunted sin instead of forgiveness. Do you see where the evils of gambling is not the primary issue here? It's not the the one behavioral issue. It's the heart. And if my heart is right with God, and if I am pursuing Him, and I am aware of the presence of His Spirit in my life, gambling is not going to be an issue. I won't be comfortable in that place. I won't be comfortable in the behavior. Because God's right there. And the office pool comes around. I'm like, you know what? I'm just not going to do it. Because I know where Jesus is. And I want to be where He is. Here's the main issue. His presence. Is He seated at the table of fortune? If you want to be in His presence. His provision. And Joe was just totally kidding, but, but made a comment a few weeks back. You know, I think I'm going to go down and buy me one of those lotto tickets. I could pay for the church building. You know? <laughs> and we laugh. <laughs> you buy lotto tickets? Is that how God provides for His people? Do you want to somehow trick your way into your own provision, or do you want God's provision? His presence, His provision, His, provision, his pardon. And I don't want to gamble with that. I want it full force. I'm like Peter, you know, at the Last Supper. Don't just wash my feet, Lord. Dump the water on me. Wash all of me. (laughs) Which is the right heart, by the way. And Jesus had to be smiling when He looked back at Peter and said, you know, I got your feet. You're cool. (laughs) I've already made you clean. You're clean, Peter. Just got to wash the gunk off your feet. You know what gambling is? The gunk on our feet. The casinos in Washington, the gunk on our feet. The sin in this world, the things that would entice and lure us, it's just the dirt on our feet. Let's get our feet washed and continue to walk in the grace of the Lord Jesus with the presence of His Holy Spirit in our lives. Here's the outcome, verse 13. Behold, My servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit, and you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called by another name. What's he saying? My servants will eat, they'll drink, they'll rejoice, they will shout with joy, they'll have a new name. He's talking about the millennial kingdom. My servants are those who are going to be ushered into the millennial kingdom. In fact, my servants of this age are those who are going to rule and reign with me, Jesus says, in the millennial kingdom. That's where my servants are headed. Where do you want to be? Would you rather be a servant of the Lord or one of the rebellious ones? We're going to talk about this more on Wednesday night, but we spent several Sundays looking at the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. 
And it's interesting that before Isaiah closes out his book, he translates the servant of the Lord, Mashiach, Jesus, is now translated to the servants of the Lord. Because the servants of the Lord are people who are Christ-like. That's our calling. As the lines are drawn, you got to choose. Servant or rebellious. And when Jesus calls, my question to each of you is, will you be counted among His servants.